nice, young, attractive Christian girl who began dating a nice young man who was not a Christian, not a believer in Jesus Christ. The relationship continued to grow and deepen, and these two decided that they were very serious about one another. And one day, the the young man asked the young girl to marry him. The young girl hesitated, even though she loved this young man, wanted to marry him, wanted to say yes, felt that she wanted to spend her life with him, yet she was very concerned about the fact that he was not a believer in Jesus Christ. And she was. In fact, her faith was very important to her. So she gave an answer to the young man, an answer of, wait, let me think this over. So she went and asked her mother what she should do. And she said, Mom, you know, I really love him and I want to marry him. However, he's not a believer. He doesn't believe in Jesus. He doesn't believe in heaven. He doesn't even believe there's a hell that he's going to go to if he does not trust in Jesus Christ. Well, the mother then gave the young girl perhaps the worst advice a Christian parent could ever give a child. The mother said, you know, honey, I think that you should go ahead and say yes and marry him because I think that between you and I, we can convince him that there is a hell. (laughs) I don't know if they ever succeeded in convincing the young boy that there is a hell. Perhaps they did convince him that there's a hell on earth. But this young boy was by no means alone today. Of all the topics we'll discuss in our series in the afterlife, none of them are more widely disbelieved and rejected than the subject to which we turn today, the subject of hell. The message today is distinctive. It's distinctive in at least two ways. First, it addresses the existence and the description of something that in ever-increasing numbers is disbelieved, not by secularists, but by those who claim Christian faith. Church historian Martin Marty wrote this describing the evangelical church of the 20th century. He said, hell disappeared and no one noticed. Today's statistics show us that belief in heaven is as high or higher than it ever was. With some studies polling people in certain parts of the country and showing that as many as 90% of people believe in the existence of heaven. But those same studies will also show that fewer and fewer people believe in the existence of its counterpart, hell. More and more people today who claim Orthodox Christian faith deny the existence of hell. Virtually all cults deny it. Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, Mormons, all cults deny the existence of hell. But more and more people who claim Orthodox Christian faith are beginning to deny the reality of hell. And what may be worse is that even among those who do believe in the existence of hell, they know virtually nothing about it. Few of any of us have ever heard an entire sermon exclusively about hell. We may have heard sermons about how you may go to hell, but we have heard very few teachings about hell itself, the reality of hell. One uh, minister in ministering in a church in Washington, D.C. once said that my congregation would be stunned to hear a sermon on hell. And that sentiment is probably true for a very high percentage of all evangelical churches in our culture. Not only do we not know much about hell, We don't want to know much about hell because the subject is so unpleasant. So this morning we'll seek a biblical understanding of hell. It is truly a horrible thing. And so um, that is one distinction this morning that the message holds is that we will be talking about something that is widely rejected today. But then also another distinction of this morning's message is that the content of what we'll talk about is perhaps the most distasteful content that you'll hear from any pulpit anywhere, anytime. I've had the very unenviable task of thinking about hell all week long. 
And this morning I will endeavor to share with you some of the Bible's teaching on the subject, and I assure you, you won't like it any more than I've liked it all week long. We're in a series called The Afterlife, a series that seeks to do two things. It seeks to affirm and anticipate. Affirm, first of all, a biblical understanding of what the Bible tells us we are to expect in the existence after this one. And secondly, to anticipate, to, to create within us a, a great sense of anticipation for the next existence. We've seen in each stage of the afterlife, we've, so, we've seen consistently that the next life is something to be highly anticipated and looked forward to by the believer in Jesus Christ. Now, today's message, I hope, will do the same thing. However, I hope that today's message will create within us an anticipation more than just an anticipation to avoid hell, but also I hope that the message this morning will heighten our overall anticipation of the next existence. So, admittedly, this is a very unpleasant topic this morning. Many Christians don't believe it. Even of those who do believe it, they tend to ignore it, but no biblical treatment of the afterlife can possibly ignore the biblical teaching of hell. So this morning I want to answer two questions regarding hell. I want to answer the question, what? And then I want to answer the question, why? First of all, what is hell? And secondly, why is hell? And I think that as we think through this this morning, and I think that you'll agree with me that perhaps we'll struggle with the second question even more than we struggled with the first question. But let's begin with the first question, what is hell? Hell, first of all, is not where the departed souls of unbelievers are now. Sometimes the New Testament refers to that as a place called Hades. In the Old Testament, there was a word that showed up quite frequently, the word Sheol. You probably are familiar with that word. That word meant nothing more than just the grave or the state of death. However, the New Testament writers took that word Sheol, translated it into the Greek language as Hades, and many New Testament writers began to add more meaning into that word Hades. And uh, sometimes the New Testament will use the word Hades to mean simply death or the grave. But oftentimes the New Testament will use the word Hades to speak of the place where unbelieving souls are now awaiting the resurrection in torment. Specifically, Jesus would use the word this way. For example, the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus from Luke chapter 16. The rich man is said to be in Hades. He is not yet cast into hell even this day. He's not yet cast into hell, but he is described nonetheless as being in torment. So much so that he longs for the drop of water on his tongue. And he's tormented also with the knowledge of his brothers who, like himself, they disbelieve in such a place. And so he seeks to alleviate his torment, first of all by the water, secondly by getting a message somehow to his brothers in an effort to warn them of this place. So that seems to describe a place of physical and emotional torment. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But that's Hades. Hades is a condition that the souls of the departed people exist in. A state of torture and unrest and extraordinary distress, but that is not hell. What we're talking about today is hell, and hell begins in Revelation chapter 20. Verse 14 from your sermon notes, you'll want to have these close and handy. We'll be referring to these quite consistently. Revelation chapter 20 verse 14 tells us of the initiation of hell. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And at that point, hell is initiated. This is following the final judgment that we talked about last week. And at that point, hell begins. So we begin by asking, who is there? Who is in hell? 
First of all, the unrepented, unrepentant, unconverted humans, along with fallen angels and their leader, Satan, Lucifer. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10 and verse 15 tell us this quite clearly. The devil and those who deceived them were thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever, as well as anyone's name who is not found written in the book of, the, of, in the book of life. So Satan, his angels... Those are not in charge of hell today. We should be careful to understand that Satan is not in control in hell. God is in control. Satan and his angels are enduring, will endure torment in hell. They will not be tormenting others. So we notice who all is there. First of all, we notice that the Scriptures seem to describe hell very much as a physical place. Now, just as there's a growing tendency to deny the existence of hell among Christians, there's also a growing tendency to assert that, that even if there is a hell, then it's not a physical, literal hell, but instead it's some sort of metaphorical separation from God kind of thing. In fact, I read a survey, that this isn't a recent survey, in fact this was 10 years old, <clears throat> but this survey indicated that, that among Methodists, 58% of Methodists deny that hell is a physical place. 60% of Episcopalians, 54% of Presbyterians. 35% of Baptists and 22% of Lutherans all deny that hell is a physical, literal place. Instead, it's described as some sort of metaphorical separation from God. Now, Scripture seems to describe to us a place that is physical in nature. Hades, where the souls of departed unbelievers are now, may very well not be a physical place, but all of that is, of course, prior to the resurrection. When hell is initiated, the Scriptures seem to describe hell as an actual place, a physical place, a physical existence, and physical interaction with the surroundings around them. It's important for us to make this distinction. It's important for us to, to distinguish between this and some sort of metaphorical separation from God. Instead, Scripture seems to strongly imply that hell is a physical place. There's no verse in Scripture that says, Behold, hell is a physical place but it seems to be the strong, consistent implication of Scripture. For example, Jesus' words in Matthew 25, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, the, the natural reading of that seems to indicate an actual physical place. Oh, Revelation 20. Again, the devil, and those who, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet were and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, etc. So, the natural reading of those passages lead us to believe that hell is a literal, physical place. But we could take those passages metaphorically. However, the one place, I think, in Scripture that seems to speak most strongly of the physical reality of hell is Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Now, according to Jesus' words, hell is a place in where the destruction of the body is something that is very possible for God to do. If the destruction of the body is something that can take place in hell, then hell must be a physical, literal place. So in distinction to some sort of semi-conscious state, some sort of metaphorical separation from God, hell is a real, actual literal place. It is a lake of fire. It is an eternal fire. 
Now, what's also interesting is, is we, we say, well, of course, hell is more than just this metaphorical separation from God. But we should ask, is hell really a separation from God at all? Because Scripture seems to give us two indications there. First of all, Scripture seems to say that hell is a separation from God, but then it'll also seem to say that it's not. For example, look on your, the inside of your bulletin flap, the, the Scripture verse for the week, 2 Thessalonians, 4, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. So that seems to say very clearly that hell is a place that is separated from God. However, look in your sermon notes now to Revelation chapter 14. Those who worship the beast and took the mark will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So Scripture seems to say both. It seems to say that hell is a place separated from God while at the same time, it's a place that those who are there undergo torment in the presence of the Lamb. How do we reconcile the two of those? Well, <clears throat> I think we begin by just recognizing the fact that we assume, we tend to assume that the presence of God is a comforting thing. We pray for the presence of God. God be with us. God be with so and so. Assuming that the presence of God is a comforting thing, and it certainly can be. However, we should also recognize that the presence of God is not necessarily always a comforting thing. There's a sense in which the presence of God is a very uncomfortable thing, especially for those who are unredeemed sinners. And so, those who are in hell are tormented in the presence of the One whom they deny, which I think would serve to make their torment all the worse. It would be tantamount to, to being punished by a parent today and the parent is, is overseeing the punishment. It's, it would certainly not make it any better. So, hell is a place that is separated from the comforting presence of God. However, there is no separation from uh, the presence of the Lamb, the One whom they denied. So, there is, there, is a, there is a sense in which God is omnipresent. God is present everywhere. There is no place that we go that is outside of His presence. David, Psalmist says, even if I go to Sheol, you are there. So even in hell, it is not away from the presence of God, but that is offering no comfort to those who are there. So Scripture seems to describe clearly hell is a place that is physical, literal in its existence. Secondly, hell also seems to be described to us as a place that is eternal. Now, one thing that we can say about what the Scriptures say about hell is that there is one thing that is clear and one thing that is unambiguous. It is the fact that Scripture describes hell as an eternal never-ending place. Now, there are those, as we've said, who, who deny the existence of hell. There are those who deny the physical, literal existence of hell. But in, in just the same, there are those who deny the eternality of hell. They deny today that hell is an everlasting place of torment. Instead, they will opt for some sort of belief that, that after the judgment, that those who are outside of Christ will cease to exist. They'll be annihilated so to speak. We'll talk a little bit later about that. But for now, what we should see is that, that whether we like this or not, whether we think this is right or not, clearly the Scriptures teach that hell is an eternal, never-ending place. Matthew 25, the words of Jesus, these will go away into eternal punishment. Mark 9, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go into hell to the unquenchable fire. Revelation 20, verse 10, and the devil and those who deceived him 
was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We'll stop there. We could go on. But clearly the Scriptures are, are communicating an eternal, never-ending, never-lessening condition. We may not like that. We may feel that an eternal punishment for sinners is out of sorts and uncalled for and out of line. However, we should be careful to understand that whether we like it or not, that is the teaching of Scripture. But even beyond that, let me just say this. If right now you're thinking your, your sensibilities are saying to you an eternal punishment just doesn't seem very kind, then just beware, beware of the trap of thinking that you are more compassionate than God. Beware of falling into the trap of feeling as though you somehow have more compassion upon sinners than God will have. That is a dangerous trap to fall into. Many have fallen into it. Thinking that the Scripture's description of hell as an eternal place of torment is just simply not kind and not compassionate. Be careful against that. That will lead us down a road into all kinds of errors. So hell is described as an eternal place but also, <clears throat> hell is a place in which those who are cast into it are done so after the resurrection, which means after they have received resurrection bodies, which tells us something about the torment that will take place there. Those who are cast in hell will have received resurrection bodies just as those who enter into heaven will receive resurrection bodies. Both of those resurrection bodies will be the same in the sense that they will be imperishable. They will not be subject to decay or sickness or death. And so what that tells us is if hell is a place of physical torment, which we have every reason to believe that physical torment is at least one aspect of the torment of hell, if hell then is a place of physical torment, then we should understand that it is a place of physical torment that is beyond our capacity to even describe. Very often we make the connection between hell and fire because the Scriptures describe it in fiery language so often. And if that fiery language means that at least an aspect of hell's torment is literal fire, then that torment will be unspeakable in its horrendousness. Because you see, we understand that physical death is something that very much limits the amount of suffering that we can endure in this life. There's only so much that we can suffer before we succumb to physical death. We read of people who are tortured and, and we understand that, that physical torture is something that has to be limited or else the person being tortured will succumb to death. Or how many of us have known those who are sick in their bodies and that sickness can only go on so long until the person succumbs to death. Death is a limiting agent for our physical suffering. However, in hell there will be no physical death. In fact, physical death would be a huge ray of hope for the condemned in hell because that would represent an, a drastic improvement in their condition. But because hell is eternal and those cast into hell have imperishable bodies, they are necessarily completely 
devoid of all hope. Hell is a place of utter, utter hopelessness. Hell will be a place in which those cast into it will, will completely abandon all hope. Jesus tells us the parable of the rich man Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, and, and He tells the rich man very plainly, your situation is not changeable. Your situation is what it is for eternity. This will be a place in which any shred of hope is banished. Dante in his Inferno imagined a sign above the vestibule of hell which read, Abandon all hope, ye who enter. There will not be the slightest possibility that the punishment will end or even get better. There's not the slightest chance that those in hell will ever get used to what they endure. You know, in this life, we have an amazing capacity to adapt and adjust to our circumstances. Whether those circumstances are physical or emotional or mental or whatever, we have just an amazing capacity to adapt to hardship in this life. However, hell will be a place in which those who are confined to hell will be eternally shocked by what they endure. Zero hope. Zero chance of ever getting any better. There's no basis to hope that God will one day have mercy. No hope that God will one day say, alright, that's enough. No hope that God will one day change His mind. Why not? Because God has promised He won't. He has told us in His Word that the lake of fire is an eternal place. And if God reneges on that promise, what other promises might He renege on? He will not. Can you perceive of an existence so horrible, so devoid of hope, so absent of any possibility of ever getting better in any way? You know, isn't that what gets you through so many difficult circumstances now? The thought that, you know, it'll get better. The thought that this won't last forever, this too will pass. How many difficult circumstances do we just sort of muscle our way through because we tell ourselves, you know, it'll get better. There'll be none of that in hell. There will be no getting better in hell. All who are, in, who are cast into hell will abandon all hope of that. Likewise, they'll abandon all comfort. Hell is a place devoid of all comfort. How often have you heard it said something like this? Hell is where I want to be because all my friends will be there. Now, if you've ever thought that thought, let me just, as tactfully as I can, let me just tell you how utterly stupid that statement is. That statement that hell is where I'd like to be because my friends will be there, that presupposes something that's very much false. That presupposes that the presence of your friends in hell will somehow give you comfort. And the Scriptures are clear to say there will be none of that in hell. No comfort, no joy. We don't know if those who are cast into hell will be able to communicate with one another or not, but if they are, then they will not communicate any comfort. We know that those in hell are denied all comfort. Jesus uses phrases like unquenchable fire, a place where the worm never dies. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man wanted just some small bit of comfort from the knowledge that his brothers might avoid this place. He wanted some small bit of comfort from a drop of water and all comfort was denied him. 
there will be a place in which those are there are incapable of giving or receiving any comfort or encouragement. So hell is eternal. Hell is hopeless. Hell is comfortless. It is a place of exceptional torment. That much is clear from the biblical language. And again, the biblical language is closely connected with the theme of fire. Lake of fire. Unquenchable fire. Rich man asking for water. And, and again, we have no reason to believe that that doesn't mean physical, literal fire. But we also have very much reason to believe that it means more than physical fire. It also perhaps means metaphorical fire. Here's what I mean. <clears throat> Scripture doesn't necessarily spell this out for us, but I think we can easily see this if we just connect a few dots. First of all, let's just observe how often the Scriptures speak of the judgment of God, the wrath of God, not so much as fire and brimstone from the sky, but simply giving over to our sinful desires. Giving us over to the sin which we pursue, which we desire. Often, Scripture describes that as the wrath of God. The clearest place to see this is Romans chapter 1. In your sermon notes, I didn't start early enough. I should have started about verse 21. Verse 21, Paul says, and the wrath of God is revealed against all mankind. And then he goes on to describe the wrath of God. Then look in your sermon notes, verse 23. Sinners exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. Therefore, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Women burned in their lust. Men burned in their lust. Women for women. Men for men. Committing shameless acts. Therefore, God gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You see how consistently Paul is saying three times the wrath of God is giving people over to the sin which they are pursuing, which they desire. Which is indeed a terrible wrath. You know, we often think that sin is attractive and beautiful and enticing and pleasant and desirable. But when sin is exposed, when you peel back the layers of sin, even start to peel back just even the first layer, you see the attractiveness of sin quickly fades. And when you get down to its core, there is no attractiveness left of sin. Sin is vile and disgusting and putrid. All sin is that way. All sin appears attractive at first. Appears enticing. Yet it is very vile and very black on the inside. And so God's wrath oftentimes is giving us over to that type of thing. Now, look in your sermon notes at just how often the Scriptures connect together the teaching on sinful desires and how often it speaks of sinful desires with the same sort of fiery language that it speaks about hell. For example, 1 Corinthians 7. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to remain single, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. The Bible speaks of sinful passions like fire, like consuming, burning fire, just like it speaks of hell as fire, consuming, burning, fiery language. Now, what is true about sin? What's true about sin is that it is pleasurable for a while. Think of Moses, Hebrews 11, verse 25. Moses chose to be mistreated with the people of God 
rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. That tells us that sin can be enjoyed and that it is pleasurable, but it is quickly fading. It is a fleeting pleasure that's enjoyed. So sin does bring pleasure. It's not lasting. It's steeply decreasing. And I I think you probably noticed this in your life, haven't you? Sin can be very pleasurable at first, and then very quickly it's less and less pleasurable so that it takes more and more of the sin to bring pleasure, and eventually that sin brings no more pleasure at all, and yet you are still entrapped to it. You're enslaved to something that no matter the quantity, no longer brings you satisfaction. That's the nature of sin. That's what God gives us over to. So we put these things together, and I think we see a picture of the torment of hell. God will completely and totally give condemned unbelievers over to their sin like they have never been given over in this life. And their passions for sin will burn and rage out of control, and yet there will be no satisfaction in them. And that will go on for eternity. Infinitely increasing desire combined with infinitely decreasing satisfaction. Perpetually burning lusts and passions that will never subside. Erwin Lutzer writes that hell is the raw soul joined to the indestructible body exposed to its own sin for eternity. For the fornicator, hell is unspeakable. Unspeakably strong sexual desire with no satisfaction. For the, for the murderer and the hater, hell is unbridled hatred with no one to hate. Hell is unbridled sexual lust with no outlet. It is a place of unquenchable raging guilt with no painkillers. It is hatred with no possibility of acting on it. It is anger with no ability to so much as speak an unkind word. It is a passionate desire to gossip and destroy people's reputation, but the inability to even whisper one unkind word. Uncontrolled selfishness with nothing to express that selfishness over. Rage that burns and burns with no one to be angry at. Except yourself. Starting to get the picture? Death by flames would be a welcomed release of such spiritual torture, but it will never come. The soul in hell will have no capacity to feed the insatiable burning desires of sin, yet those desires will never subside and they will increasingly, infinitely increase for eternity. This is why hell is described as a place of weeping gnashing of teeth. You ever been angry with nobody to be angry at? You know, like you bump your head, and you lean over, stand up too fast, you knock your head on something, and for that moment you feel that instant of rage, and there's no one or nothing to be angry at? How unsatisfying is that? Multiply that by infinity, and stretch it out for eternity. And that is being given over to the desires of sin. Infinite desire 
No satisfaction for that desire. Infinitely increased desire, infinitely decreased satisfaction. Now how will people in hell feel about the one who sent them there? Will people be angry at God in hell? I believe not. I believe that the day of judgment will so perfectly and so completely establish the moral guilt of the unredeemed that those in hell will be in complete agreement with God that that is precisely where they should be. The rich man never questioned why he was cast into Hades. He gave every indication that he agreed that this was the place that he deserved. I believe that hell will be a place much different from prison. In prison, we talk, you know, we talk about how everybody's innocent in prison. That sentiment won't exist in hell. Those who are there will be in perfect agreement with God for their, over the issue of their guilt. Now imagine, imagine the eternal self-loathing that that will create. You've been angry. The only person you had to be angry at is yourself. Imagine that increased by infinity and stretched out for eternity. Those are a few observations that Scripture gives us about hell. That hell, Scripture doesn't really describe a lot what hell will exactly be. But I think those are some observations that help us to answer the question, what is hell? Now for the second question, why is hell? Why is hell? Why must there be a hell? Hell is perhaps the most offensive doctrine in Christianity. More offensive than our stance on homosexuality. More offensive than what the Bible has to say about the roles of men and women. The most offensive thing that Scripture has to say is the doctrine of hell. Just this past week, I had an atheist tell me that if there was an existence after this one, he sure hoped it wasn't the Christian existence because he didn't want any part of either side of that. He didn't want anything to do with the Christian hell, but neither did he want anything to do with the Christian heaven in which people celebrated the torment of unbelievers for eternity. Hell is a despised idea today. The thought that God punishes people who reject Him, that seems so petty of God. And it seems so contradictory to the idea of a God of love. How could a God of love do this to people? Now the discomfort with the teaching of hell has led people to, all kind, to invent all kinds of ways around the problem. Some Christians will become universalists, believing that God will save all people in the end, even Lucifer. Others go the way of annihilationism. We talked about that earlier, in which they believe that the unredeemed will cease to exist at the day of judgment, just be burned up and destroyed. Now, hopefully, hopefully, right now you're thinking that, you know, maybe I don't know all that much about the Bible, but I think that even I can show you how the Bible clearly denies both of those positions. However, that does serve to demonstrate discomfort that the doctrine of hell gives us. So much so that Christians who can accept everything else their Bible tells them will reject the clear teaching of hell. So let me pause and say, do you struggle with the concept of hell? You should. If you do not struggle with the doctrine of hell, if the concept of hell does not trouble you, if you do not wrestle with this, 
if you are so hard that the thought of hell does not disturb you deeply, then you need to repent of your hardness of heart and ask God to radically soften your heart this morning. The doctrine of hell should disturb us greatly. But why must it be? Why must there be a hell? And why must it be so bad? And why must it be eternal? Those are questions that Scripture never directly answers. Let's try to offer some sort of answer to why hell must be so bad and why it must be eternal. Our problem with the doctrine of an eternal hell is that basically the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime, does it? Punishment just seems way overboard for the crime, especially for those who have never heard of Christ. The thought of an eternal hell for those is offensive. Or for those whom we all know who who are just good people that want nothing to do with God or God's people, but they're just good people, then the punishment for them just seems to be so way overboard. Which is why we'll often just in our minds, include good people under the umbrella of God's people without really discerning what the Scriptures teach about salvation because the punishment for those people just seems to be so out of sorts. But the basis of the question is, is hell fair? Is hell just? Is the atrocities that we just described, are they just? So let's ask it this way. Let's first focus on the eternal aspect of hell. Is everlasting punishment fitting of the crime? Let me suggest that the way that our culture has been programmed to think tells us that everlasting punishment is never fitting for the crime. In other words, we're programmed to think that punishment should always be redemptive. And in this life, that's a good thing. Punishment should be redemptive. Those who serve prison sentences should be rehabilitated. All punishment should have a redemptive aspect to it. However, eternal punishment in hell has no redemptive aspect. And so we struggle with that. We struggle with punishment that is not redemptive in nature. But let's not forget the judgment day. Hell follows the judgment day. That day in which billions and billions and billions of times God's righteousness and God's justice will be displayed for all. Those who have heard of Christ will be be judged by what they knew of the Gospel and yet rejected it, and they chose to stand before God with their own righteousness and they found that they had none. Those who never heard the Gospel are still condemned because Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that, that all people are aware that there is a God and that we owe Him gratitude and thankfulness and worship and none of us give Him that. And so we know we know that the only way that we can stand on that judgment day is with the gifted righteousness of Christ. All else is condemned and all else is rightly condemned. Furthermore, we know that that, just, that judgment will be perfect. No misjudgment will be made. Every motive will be properly and perfectly judged There will be no mistrials, no hung juries, no improper verdicts, no extenuating circumstances, no pleas of insanity. Now another thing we should try to understand is the seriousness of sin. Seriousness of sin. Sin is something that we all, 100% of us, take too lightly today. And the doctrine of hell tells us that God doesn't take sin as lightly as we. 
take sin. If we saw sin as God sees sin, then none of us would struggle with the doctrine of hell. If we truly saw sin as God sees sin, we would not struggle with the doctrine of hell. Jonathan Edwards was a theologian and a pastor in 18th century America. And he wrote a great deal about this. In fact, he was the one who preached that famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he helps us to think through this issue by teaching us that the gravity of sin, the heinousness of sin, is determined by the glory of the one sinned against, by the status of the one sinned against. In other words, the higher the status of the one sinned against, the more heinous the sin. In other words, if you sin against your dog, then that's not as serious as sinning against a human being. If you're cruel to your cat, then that is not as bad as being cruel to a human being. Common sense tells us this, plus Genesis 9, verse 6 tells us this. God says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? Because God made man in His own image. Because we bear the image of God, sin against humans is more atrocious than sin against a cat. Now, take that comparison and multiply it by infinity because God is infinitely more glorious than us. God is infinitely higher than us. Infinitely holier. Infinitely more worthy than us. Therefore, logically, sin against God is infinitely heinous. Furthermore, once sinners are condemned to hell, the Scriptures tell us that they don't stop sinning. Physical death for the believer in Christ means a ceasing of sin, but not for the unbeliever. Scripture tells us that unbelievers will go on sinning for eternity. They will never cease sinning. Look at Revelation chapter 22, verse 11. This is, make note, this is two chapters after the judgment. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still be right, and the holy still be holy. In other words, those who are condemned to hell will continue sinning forever. Now combine that with the teaching that we just saw that the wrath of God is being given over to our sinful desires. And that tells us that in hell, not only will those who are committed to hell continue to sin, but their sin will go into overdrive. Their sin will ramp up to levels that is never reached in this life. And so they will continue for eternity, heaping upon themselves more and more condemnation. Those who are committed to hell will spend an eternity making themselves more and more deserving of where they are. Lastly, let's also understand that suffering cannot redeem us. There is no aspect in which our own suffering can make us holy. And so, those who, are, those who will suffer in hell, their suffering doesn't make up for their sin. Because suffering can't redeem us. We can't suffer our way into righteousness. And so therefore, even if we infinitely suffer for eternity, we are still not making ourselves any more acceptable to God. We're not making it up to God. You know, when prisoners are released after they serve their sentence, and sometimes they'll say that they've paid their debt to society. However, we cannot pay our debt to God. 
our sin is too heinous. Plus, the condemned go on adding more and more and more sin for eternity, making themselves more and more and more worthy of where they are. Now, hopefully that helps us wrestle with the question of why it's there. I want to just take a moment and just apply this. Give, give us just two applications for the teaching of hell. First of all, from your sermon notes, number one, hell will add to your eternal happiness. Now I realize how difficult and how harsh that statement may sound. However, it is the teaching of Scripture. We are given the decision as to whether we will believe it or not. Is that what that is what Scripture seems to say to us? For example, Revelation chapter 6, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The souls awaiting the resurrection and the judgment call out for God to avenge the sins committed against them. Or Revelation 19, after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The point here, folks, is that hell will not detract from your eternal happiness in no way. It will add to it. In heaven, your complete delight will be in God and whatever adds to God's glory and justice and righteousness also necessarily adds to your happiness. You must accept that by faith, as difficult as it may be. But I think point number two may also help us with point number one. Application number two is that you are, you are Christ-like when you are broken over the reality of hell in this life. In other words, what we seem to see in Scripture is that God tells us that it is right to be distressed and broken over hell now, but the judgment day seems to change that. There seems to be a change at judgment day in which once judgment day occurs and the eternal fate of everyone is sealed forever and cannot be changed, at that point we then view hell differently. Take a look in your sermon notes. Here, Romans 9, verse 2, speaking of the Jews who reject the Messiah, Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Matthew 20, 23, Jesus, Jesus mourns for those who reject Him and, and wishes that they would stop. Or the definitive passage, I think, is Ezekiel 33, verse 11. God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. So we're given a paradox to believe here. And the paradox is, in this life, up until Judgment Day, hell distresses us enormously. But after Judgment Day, it seems to be different. We will exist in heaven in such a way that nothing, nothing will detract from our happiness in the slightest way. As horrible as hell seems to be from this side of the curtain, the other side of the curtain looks better. For the one who is in Christ, everything after this life, everything is to be anticipated. 
or the one who is outside of Christ, everything after this life is to be dreaded. 